0: This is Our American Stories, and those are two sounds that we love here, the sound of great gospel music, and if you remember where and when this song was used best in a movie, Well, it's Secretariat. And Secretariat came to us as a shining example of aristocracy. Big, handsome, full of charge. He walked with style, stood tall, and displayed the best manners. On paper, he wasn't perfect, losing five of his 21 races, as if to say, I'm only human. But to the eye, he was perfection itself. And when he performed, he took our breath away. Yet some may ask, how could he have been voted 35th among the 20th century's 50 greatest athletes. Furthermore, how could a horse place a close second behind Wilt Chamberlain's unimaginable 100-point game on ESPN's Who's Number One list of greatest sports performances by an individual athlete? And the answer? Because he was secretariat. And he was more than just a horse. And on this day in 1989, secretariat died. Let's take a listen to his story.
1: He had a kind of a princely quality about it. Physically, mentally, he had the temperament. He had the physique, he had the heart. He had brilliant speed, great stamina.
2: The girths which are made by saddlers wouldn't fit him. They had special ones made to go under that big belly. It is said by experts that he was the perfect horse in measurement. You could look at Secretary
3: and you knew that he was something special. In addition to being an extraordinarily good runner, uh, there was a very imperious uh, look to him. It had a big flashing copper coat on him, and when the sun's rays hit him, it was a beautiful thing to see. It was the way God intended to, uh, to make a horse.
4: You can't anticipate greatness. You can't really define it, I suppose. It's something that that God, every once in a while, sticks in somebody. And and because it comes from God, um, the gift can't be ignored. And it can't be defeated. And the great athletes use it, even if they're not human.
0: So true. And despite the universal praise ultimately lavished on this horse in a million, his career began without fanfare on July 4, 1972, as his trainer, Lucien Lorraine looked on from the owner's box.
5: He made his debut as a two-year-old at Aqueduct. And unfortunately, he had some trouble leaving the starting gate and got banged around.
6: The rider did a terrible job. Had him been in trouble the whole way. I mean, he was, you know, never had a chance to run, and everybody saw it. On the outside, it's Quebec 6th, followed by Fleet and Royal 7th. Virgin is 8th, Jacques on the inside ninth, Secretariat is 10th.
7: Lucian got up and he kicked the chair across the box and he said, damn, that horse should never be beaten. And that's when I knew that Lucian thought we had a really good
1: horse. Secretariat's chief problem in his life was he was handled by people, he been handled by someone other than flawed human beings. He would have been undefeated.
0: After finishing fourth in his all-too-human debut, Secretariat won his next two races, the second under a new jockey, Ron Turcotte. But it wasn't until the Sanford Stakes in Saratoga Springs, New York, when the horse that would capture America's heart gave us just a glimpse into the future. Here's Secretariat's jockey.
5: I was sitting behind two horses. I started to make my move because it was an opening. And when them two horses come back together, they just ricocheted off him. And it's just like nothing happened. He went on and won by himself. That was the beginning where he really impressed me.
6: Ronnie Turcotte wins it aboard Secretariat, under the wire, the winner by three lengths.
8: He separated himself uh, from the rest of the crop pretty effectively, especially his races at Saratoga that summer.
5: By the time that he approached his third start, then it was happening. I mean, then there was a lot being said in this red horse that Lucian Lauren has, and uh, could be something special. You know, it could be.
6: In the middle of the racetrack, Secretariat with a rush moving to the leaders. They come down to the top of the stretch. Sunny South has the lead by a her neck. Here comes Secretariat on the outside, rushing to contention.
1: When Secretariat made his move in the hopeful, it was unlike any move that I'd ever seen a two-year-old make. It was uh, the kind of a move that you just, t- it takes your breath away, that you could hear the collective gasp from the entire Saratoga grandstand. It was just like, wow, did you see that?
6: They straighten away in the stretch, and Secretariat takes the lead by lengths. He circled the entire field in 22-1 and 1 for a quarter, going around the turn about eight wide. And you don't see any horse, let alone two-year-old, do that.
8: Physically, he was mature beyond his years. He was clearly
3: the dominant two-year-old in America. There was a sustained interest in Secretariat, and he was anticipated to uh, as a a real triple crown potential horse uh, right along.
1: For a two-year-old to become horse of the year, he can't just be a very good two-year-old. He has to break the mold. He has to do something really sensational and different. Secretariat looks like a two-year-old who could turn into a super horse.
0: Beyond his explosive acceleration and lofty bearing, Secretariat exuded a human dimension, that quickly gained him national fame.
5: secretary had just had a regal way of standing before he was going out to work out, and uh, he looked like he was in charge.
7: He was beautifully balanced and had this rich red color and the interesting blaze, but the best thing about him was his eye.
9: It was incredible.
1: All of a sudden, he'd be looking at the stands. He'd walk out, slow down, finally come to a little halt, like he was saying hello to that pretty girl in the stands. Every time he heard a camera, he turned. He'd stop and turn. I saw secretary once watch an airplane fly overhead. I'd never seen that before. He had that star quality about him, sort of like
9: the movie stars arriving on the red carpet at the Academy Awards. He would look over, give you the perfunctory, it's me, good to see you, gotta go.
8: Instead of a bit player uh, on the New York stage, he would have probably been an English stage actor doing Shakespeare.
9: If he could have talked, he'd have been a son of a Because he was arrogant. He was the heavyweight champion of the world, and he knew it. And when we come back, more
0: on Secretary It's Life. We do it all here on Our American Stories. And you can't wait to hear the rest of this great story. More after these messages. our American stories and we continue with the story of Secretariat who died on this day in history in 1989 and all of our this day in history is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College a beautiful and fine place to study all the things that matter in life and if you can't get to Hillsdale Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses go to hillsdale.edu that's hillsdale.edu and you don't hear me editorialize much on this show But if you ever get a chance, get to the far turn of a major horse racing event. It's one of my favorite things to do. Belmont, Santa Anita, the Illinois Derby, the Arkansas Derby. Get to the far turn and watch these magnificent animals fly and hurtle at 35 to 40 miles an hour with a jockey sitting on top of them, basically riding bareback. When you see the saddle, you'll laugh. It's a magnificent sight for you and your family. And it's one of my favorites, one of my personal favorites, my little girl. Reagan loves to ride horses. Let's pick up the story. That marquee quality sparked investor interest throughout the racing world. In early 1973, shares for Secretariat were sold for a record total of $6 million. Then after winning his first two starts of the year, the unexpected happened in his Kentucky Derby tune-up at Aqueduct Racetrack in Queens, New York. Here's Jim Gaffney, Secretariat's exercise rider.
5: The day before the Wood Memorial, I worked him a three-eighths of a a mile, and I had to kick him to to make him work, and I never had to do that. I told the foreman, there's something the matter with this horse. I said, you better have him checked out. And this word never got back to Lucian Lawn. Ronnie said the horse was acting funny in the gate, and every
6: time he pulled on the rein, he jerked his head back that he had never done that, and he couldn't understand it. 70 yards in the finish, it's Angolite in front, Sham on the outside, and here's the finish. Angolite holding on, winning it by a neck. It's a big upset. Secretariat finishing third in a photo.
0: And as you can imagine, the investors weren't thrilled. I mean, they had just popped down $6 million, and in this tune-up to the Derby, just a terrible run and they thought what have we done well with the derby just two weeks away serious questions arose about the jockey's ability to guide secretariat to victory in the first leg of the triple crown secretariat's trainer lucian lauren didn't know what to think but others were losing confidence in the horse
4: Secretariat came to kentucky with a huge number of detractors
10: all of a sudden Lucian Loren brings him into Louisville and there's just all this uh, uh, controversy about uh, rumors that he might have hurt himself uh, in the Wood Memorial and and Jimmy the Greek at that time was going around telling people the week of the Derby that the horse was lame.
9: This horse was such a great two-year-old he was horse of the year as a two-year-old and now he's coming in here with a chance to be maybe the greatest thing since Man of War. But you can't block out all these rumors and, and you wonder, what's going to happen here
0: today? Well, with all those negative rumors, Secretariat was still a 3-2 to two favorite to win the biggest race of his young life. And by the way, the biggest race in racing. A record 134,000 hummed with expectation.
9: This is Churchill Downs, Louisville, Kentucky, on this first Saturday in May 1973. I'm Jack Whitaker, and this is the 99th running of the Kentucky Derby.
6: Moments from a start. Secretariat is in the gate. Mike Gallant is moving in. Secretariat throws his head a bit. They're at the post. And they're off. For the lead. On the inside, that's Angle Light for the lead.
1: He broke dead last and he was dead last after a quarter of a mile.
6: Then forego on the outside
7: Navajo, followed by Secretariat. Into the spring of his three-year-old year, year, Secretariat really started making up his own mind. He seemed to understand racing and seemed to want to dictate his own strategy.
6: Secretariat is fourth and moving up on the outside and is now third and moving at the leaders as they come for the head of the stretch. They're at the head of the stretch and Cham is the leader. He leads it by a length. Secretariat is in the center of the racetrack and driving.
9: And then he made this tremendous move and we knew that we had seen something historic and maybe perhaps we were going to have a great Triple
6: Crown winner. Now in the stretch, it's sec- Secretariat. Secretariat on the outside to take the lead. Sham holding in second. It's Secretariat moving away. He has it by
5: two and a half. And I read back and hit him a couple of times. and shoot, He just took off. I just put my stick down and he he went by two and a half very easily.
6: Jam, then on the outside, our native. That's the way it's going to be, Secretariat. He wins it by two lengths. Secretariat just broke the old Kentucky Derby
1: record. People were looking at the tote board. He ran the last quarter mile in 23 seconds, which is unprecedented in the Derby. Secretariat did something that no horse ever did. He went each of the
6: five quarters faster. It justified logic.
2: Another quarter of a mile, he might have taken to the air and flown, which is obviously. What was in his blood?
0: As the first horse to run the mile and a quarter derby in under two minutes, Secretary turned what had been uneasiness in Louisville into confidence in Baltimore. He went off as a 3 to 10 favorite in the Preakness Stakes at Pimlico Racecourse, where I lived just six miles away and spent my favorite Saturdays of my life for eight years. This is the tightly turned second leg of the Triple Crown. Well,
9: it's almost ready. The horse is just about to move into that starting gate. The weather is perfect, and we're just waiting for a fine horse race.
7: Secretary was still running with an explosive style, and centrifugal force would carry him wide on the turns, and Pimlico is considered to have tighter turns. That was the one I was worried about.
6: And they're off Oh, the early lead. That's Deadly Dream on the outside,
1: Taj. Then it's also torsion on the outside. In the Preakness, He broke last again. Now he's going to the turn. You think it's going to be the same thing as the Derby.
6: Then our native and secretariat is last again as they move into the first turn.
1: Turcotte took a hold of him, made almost an imperceptible gesture with his hands like a man adjusting his cuff. Took the horse to the outside and he went boom. He went from last to first in about 180 yards.
6: Sham under an easy hole right now, but here comes Secretariat. He's moving fast, and he's going to the outside. He's going for the lead, and it's right now he's looking for it.
10: He just accelerated and just circled the field, and I said, good Lord, what is Turquette thinking about? I mean, this horse is cooked because you just didn't see a horse ever make a move like that, especially in the first turn.
7: It was far too early for him to have been moved strategically. Ronnie wouldn't have asked him to run. That soon in the race, it had to be what the horse wanted to do.
6: Secretariat holding it by a length and a half. Here comes Sham second on the outside now. Now it's Secretariat the leader by a length and a half with Sham moving into second.
5: Once I get to the lead there and I just drop him on the rail and just turn his head loose, and he went back to Gal from his old self, you know, he just. Open alone, you know, I kept thinking Belmont.
6: Secretariat by two lengths. Sham driving second. There's the strong left-handed whip again by Tinkai. He goes to it time and time again, but Ronnie Turcott has his whip put away.
9: went into another level of, of consciousness in the uh, public eye. There were actually kids standing on the rail as he came by. This horse had now captured the public, not just a racing crowd.
11: Secretariat did it again today. He won the Preakness at Pimlico, and he's now two-thirds of the way toward the Triple Crown.
8: Expectations were very high for any horse, not just Secretariat, to win the Triple Crown. After 25 years since Citation had won it in 1948, there'd been a lot of very good horses that had tried to win and failed. Winning the Triple Crown seemed almost impossible. It uh, was tantamount to the 400 hitter in baseball or the DiMaggio 56 game hitting streak.
9: This was something that uh, most Americans had finally concluded will never happen again. No one will ever win the Triple Crown again. And what great
0: storytelling about one of the world's greatest racehorses and an American favorite. Again, the number two sports performance of all time by an animal, Uh, not just any animal, secretary at that remarkable performance at Belmont Racetrack, which you'll be hearing later. And by the way, as I had said earlier, I'm a huge horse racing fan. My little girl competes in hunters and jumping and she does all kinds of crazy stuff on horses and The thing about winning a Kentucky Derby, a Preakness and the Belmont, is that it's just so hard in modern life because of specialized breeding. And the Derby, well, consider it like a mid-length race. The Pimlico, the Preakness, well, that's a sprint. That's in Baltimore only two weeks later. And then four weeks later, off to New York for the Belmont, and that is a mile and a half, which is, well, it's like a marathon for a horse. It's a whole different kind of breeding that allows you to win the sprint, the mid, and then, of course, that long-haul race in New York. And so few horses have done it, and so few did it. And the way that, well, the way that Secretariat did it was just remarkable. By the way, we did a story about one Triple Crown winner, American Pharaoh, Me, my dad, and American Pharaoh, written by Gary Ginsberg. You can go to Our American Network and listen to that. It's a son's lament about a father and son's passion for the great sport of horse racing. And of course, Justify. Justify did it too and won a Triple Crown not too long ago. And it's still great to see America get fired up about these Triple Crown winners and that it's still a relevant sport today. Well, it means a lot to me, and it's why we're doing this story in the end. Rarely do I editorialize, but again, the love of horses and horse racing comes about when we come back more of this remarkable life story the story of secretariat here on our american stories Not since man of war in 1920 had a horse so captivated the nation. Now the one to ten favorite had a chance to succeed where seven horses failed since nineteen forty eight to win the Belmont Stakes after taking the first two legs of the Triple Crown. June 9, 1973, the day of reckoning, broke bright and clear. By post time, millions of Secretariat fans put their money where their hearts were, some for the first time in their lives. Of the 70,000 that overflowed the stands, a few had been at the track since sunup.
1: I was there at 6 o'clock in the morning. I was there all night. I fell asleep against a tree by his barn. The fittest I have ever seen a horse. His eyes were big as saucers, his nostrils were flared, he was nickering, his ears were playing, his muscles were rippling, and he's walking around in his hind legs, and I remember thinking to myself, boy what are we going to see today?
4: Before the race you could see not only what Secretariat meant to really veteran hard-boiled you know step over a guy with a heart attack and so get shut out at the window betters okay but also with people who were at that track who were not gamblers, who were their kids because it was Secretariat this was the people's
1: horse
10: everybody wanted to see him not only win but do it in a way that would really be authoritative
1: i'm looking at him i think i've never seen him walk like this before he looks like the execution man he's going to the gallows (laughs) he's about to dispatch somebody
6: and they're off looks like the early Goes to Mike Gallant. Yes, Mike Gallant going for the lead with Price and Prince on the outside. Secretary to the way very well has good position on the rail, and in fact is now going up with the leader.
10: Sham had been such a tough competitor for him in the first two races. Uh, he wondered, would this finally be Sham's day? My instruction were uh, to, to, to to be very close. Secretaria from the way go.
6: And now it's Sham. Sham and Secretary are right together into the first turn. My gallant ass third behind them. Then it's twice the bit, and the trailer is private smiles as they go by the turn.
7: He just felt like running. That was the day he felt terrific. I says, just leave him alone. I says, just take the long hold and let him
5: run his own race.
1: Ron Turcott. He let him run. Come on. Let's see what he's got. You've done the Derby, you've done the Preakness, come on. Let's see how he goes all out. How good can this guy go? They
6: continue down the back stretch. that Secretariat not taking the lead.
1: I looked at the teletimer and saw that the horse had gone 3 quarters of a mile in 109 and 2, which is the fastest 3 quarters of a mile ever run in the Belmont Stakes. And he's leaving sham at this point. They're moving on the turn now.
6: For the turn at Secretariat, it looks like he's opening.
4: He is running and running and running and I turned to the guy next to me and I said, he's lost the horse. Three and a half. He's moving
12: into the turn. Secretarian holding on to a large lead. Day on the second and then it's a
6: long way back to Mike Allen twice
1: a print. And I'm thinking, he has gone insane. And I'm saying, I'm cursing him under my breath. You moron. What are you doing? You know, you're gonna kill the horse. You're going to lose the Triple Crown. Don't you know how fast you're going?
7: Nobody knew that that was going to happen. Uh, Not the rider, not the trainer, not the owner. I think probably not the horse. Secretariat is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine.
1: Secretariat by 12. Secretariat by 14 length on the turn. And he still has a quarter of a mile to go. And I'm thinking to myself, he's going to totally collapse in the stretch. He can't keep this up and I'm asking, other guys that are on the track. What are you thinking? And everybody, to a man, is thinking he's going too damn fast. Secretary
12: is in a position that he's impossible to catch. He's into the stretch. Secretary
6: leads his field by eighteen lengths.
7: Lucien said to me, "Oh my God, Ronnie, just don't fall off! Don't fall off!" Finally,
5: after I turned for home, my curiosity got the best of me. I had to turn around. When I look at it, I scare myself. Here in the set, Secretariat has opened a 22-length lead. He is going
12: to be the triple crown winner. Here comes Secretariat to the wire. An unbelievable, an amazing performance. He hits the finish, 25 lengths in front.
4: 25 lengths in front, and here's the fallout. I believed in Pegasus that day, because I saw him. I mean, I never saw anything like that in my life. 31 lengths. I mean, it's, it's, think of what that, I mean, that's unbelievable. It's like it's like they were
3: racing on two different racetracks. It was like the Lord was holding the reins. Secretariat was one of his creatures, and he maybe whispered to him a, a go, and that horse really went. It was really an almost supernatural uh, experience. It really was.
1: I leaped up out of my chair at Belmont Park, shouting, we'll never see this again. And I get to the elevator to go down to the Winner Circle, and I'm standing next to Pete Axthelm, And he said, I used to think that the Ali Frazier fight in Madison Square Garden was the greatest thing I've ever seen. This was even greater.
9: Everybody was speechless. And then, when it set in, people were crying i actually saw people crying at this event i mean it was such an overwhelming thing there were these co-eds lining the rail this sounds hard to believe but i swear half of them were weeping as he went by
2: jack nicholas once called me over and said you were at the belmont you saw that race and i said yes and he said i was all alone in my living room watching and as he came down the stretch pulling away I applauded and I
1: cried and Haywood said to him in a, in a brilliant moment of epiphany and insight he said Jack don't you understand he said all of your life in your game you've been striving for perfection and he said at the end of the Belmont you saw it
10: when you beat a track record you normally beat it by a fifth of a second he knocked two seconds maybe two and a fifth off of the track record and won by 31 lengths it was There's no horse in the history of horse racing that could have ever beaten Secretariat on that day.
1: You're not supposed to win majors by a dozen strokes, you're not supposed to score 100 points, and you're not supposed to win the Belmont by 31 lengths.
4: The desperate way in which the losers were so beaten and so battered by this horse, it was the Confederate Army staggering home after Appomattox. I mean, these are all flowery, ridiculous things, and you could say, hey, it's nothing but a horse race. I'm sorry. This horse was an athlete.
0: But this is more than a story about a great American horse. This is the story of a great American team, the team's leader, Penny Chenery. In 1971, with her father a victim of Alzheimer's, the family's horse farm began losing money. Chenery siblings originally planned to sell the operation when their father could no longer run it. Chenery, however, wanted to try to fulfill her father's dream to win the Kentucky Derby. The housewife and mother of four fired longtime trainer Casey Hayes and hired Roger Lauren to train and manage the Meadow Stable Horses. Lauren helped to cut costs and return the operation to profitability before leaving. In May of 1971, Chenery hired his father, Lucian Lauren, and in 1972, they guided the Meadow Farm's colt, Reva Ridge, to victory in the Kentucky Derby. Belmont Stakes.
2: Again, it was a great movie script to have Reva Ridge. Indeed, her farm manager, an old Mr. Gentry, said to me after 1972, well, I'm sorry, Haywood from Miss Tweedy. Next year, she she had all that excitement with Reva, and next year, she got nothing. And, of course, nothing was Secretariat.
8: Were it not for Penny Chenery, I think Secretariat would have been as famous and as popular a racehorse, but I don't think we would have remembered him in quite as completely a satisfying way.
10: Penny was the perfect owner for Secretariat. Uh, She was this uh, uh, attractive, uh, intelligent, uh, gracious woman, and I think because of her, probably, a lot of the women in America really became interested in Secretariat, maybe more than they would have been had there been uh, a man owner. I hope I've been a role model for women, but it
7: just was never in italics in my uh, game plan. I just happened to be a woman.
0: And that was Penny you were listening to. And when we come back, a few more thoughts on Secretariat, and then we will play you that me, my dad, and American Pharaoh segment we talked about earlier, uh, the last Triple Crown winner, of course, American Pharaoh. And we're talking right now about the greatest Triple Crown winner of all time, Secretariat This is our American Stories Secretariat Story Continues. In November of 1973, just 16 months since his inauspicious debut, The Big Chestnut retired and was set to stud at Claiborne Farm in Paris, Kentucky. Shortly after, the Today Show arrived to do a hit on Secretariat. Here's NBC's Tom Hanman and Dick Enberg.
10: And uh, we set up right uh, by the Secretariat paddock. And it was one of the great performances of all time because it was like he knew he was on national TV. He sat there and he posed with his head and his ears and it was like the star knew that the red light was on. It's time to perform. I asked Seth Hancock, now how could you tell? I mean, they all look so magnificent. How how could you tell that
1: Secretariat was any better than anyone else? He says, you know, it's their eyes. Yeah, the great athletes have great throwbreads, it's their eyes. And as he said, eyes, Secretariat snapped his head and stared at me like that to say, and you better believe it, just looked me right in the eyes. and, And he told me then, he said, even out in the field, when they feed the horses, they wait till Secretariat eats first.
0: In the fall of 1989, Secretariat became afflicted with laminitis, a painful and debilitating hoof condition. When his condition failed to improve, after a month of treatment, he was euthanized on October 4 at the age of
13: 19. We decided we'd bury him at 10 o'clock on a Thursday morning.
0: You look at everybody's faces and tears rolling down the cheeks. And, you know, that's that. You know, you bury him and uh, be thankful for what you had. and Go on back to your job and see if you can come close to getting your hands on another one like him, which will never happen and you know it, but
1: that's what you're in it for.
0: Secretariat was given the rare honor of being buried whole, usually only the head, heart, and hooves of a winning racehorse are buried. The autopsy revealed what every poet knew, that his heart was huge. At 22 pounds, his heart was two and a half times larger than those who ran so far behind him.
6: When I did the autopsy on Secretariat, we were quite astonished. He was certainly unusual. He was almost a freak in nature, but a freak in terms of being so abnormally perfect.
1: He had a larger motor and he was able to crack up oxygen and synthesize it faster and more efficiently than any other horse I've ever seen.
7: He just had a superior power pack and he was showing it to the world. I wonder what he thought. He must have had a sense of accomplishment. Every now and then some athlete
2: is touched for a moment with a kind of higher level of greatness which they may never achieve again, but at that moment they were more than life allows. It was the same thing that Babe Ruth did for baseball, to someone that everyone can relate to, think about, be amazed about, and that's what he did for racing.
0: And he really brought American people around, well, around horse racing and actually just brought them together. And that brings us to our American Pharaoh story that I talked to you about before. Gary Ginsburg, the executive vice president of corporate marketing and communications at Time Warner, tells the heartwarming story of he and his father and how they spent summers at the racetrack. And again, American Pharaoh, another Triple Crown winner. Well, here's Gary lamenting about the life 40 years later of he and his dad.
12: And they're into the stretch. And American Pharoah makes his run for glory as they come into the final furlong.
6: Frosted is second with one eighth of a mile to go. American
10: Pharoah's got a two-length lead. Frosted is all out at the 16th pole, and here it is—the 37-year wait is over. American Pharoah is finally the one. American
11: Fans here at Belmont
14: Park. When American Pharaoh crossed the finish line in Belmont Stakes on June 6, 2015, becoming the first Triple Crown winner in 37 years, I cried. After talking with friends who also watched the race, most of us men in our 50s and 60s, I discovered I was not alone. Many of us were overcome by emotion and, as it turns out, mostly for the same reason we were thinking about our dads. For a generation of American men born during the Great Depression, racing was much more than a five-week diversion from the first Saturday in May to the first Saturday in June. It was an obsession. And the obsession was shared with us, their children, so that in many cases, horse racing came to define the relationship we had with our fathers in the little free time they had to share with us. For me and for so many of my friends Saturday, the one person with whom we all wanted to share this historic moment was no longer by our side. The joy and thrill of the race was tempered by a profound sadness. My dad, Erwin Ginsburg, has had four great passions in life. The law, tennis, his family, and thoroughbred racing, though not necessarily in that order. He developed his fascination with horses as a kid in Buffalo, during what was arguably the sports heyday. following the exploits of horses like War Admiral and Citation. Between the ages of 7 and 18, he had already witnessed an astonishing five Triple Crown winners, and he was hooked. He wanted to make sure I got hooked, too.
12: It's a beauty!
14: Sunday, the one day of the week he didn't go into his law office, was race day. We'd pile into our Chrysler New Yorker and head from our home in Buffalo to the Fort Erie racetrack in Ontario. Once there, Dad would walk me through the intricacies of the racing form, speed ratings, past performances, class levels, before placing a series of exotic bets on the fillies and mares traveling the hard-bitten Southern Ontario race circuit. When he lost, which was more times than not, He'd angrily crumple the betting slips, ending up with a small mountain under his seat by the end of the day. Uh,
9: that horse, named Secretariat, is the reason why one of the greatest crowds in horse racing history has turned out here at Belmont Park in New York to see a if- picture.
14: But we were in front of our Zenith TV for the I'm best Jack race of all the, the 1973 Belmont Stakes. Secretariat had already run the fastest Kentucky Derby and Preakness in history, and came to the race of champions as the prohibitive favorite. For my dad, it represented the best chance to end a 25-year Triple Crown drought. My 11-year-old self sensed the moment's historic significance, so I brought
2: my tape recorder. And you will see, and Secretariat being led, he is number is two, but he goes into the number one post.
14: Listening and to that cassette today, I can hear the tension in my father's uh, voice as the horses make their way to the starting move, gate. Move, move. He yells move at me to move away the from the screen, though the race is still
6: a minute from post. North, we're ready to go for this tremendous Belmont day.
14: Then the race starts, and it quickly becomes a two-horse contest, with Secretariat pulling away after the half-mile pole. We're quiet at first... But the silence breaks when I shout, he's going to win. My father shushes me. and We both go quiet again until Secretariat rounds the final turn.
6: Secretariat is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine. Secretariat by 12. Secretariat by 14 length on the turn. Sam is dropping
14: My father starts repeating. Oh, my God. Oh, my God.
6: The Secretariat is all alone. He's out there almost a sixteenth of a mile away from the rest of the horses.
14: Well, I'm unable to control my prepubescent excitement and begin screaming again at the screen.
6: Secretariat has opened the 20... 20-
14: Years that followed we watched seattle slough and affirmed win their triple crowns and continued our sunday traditions at the track eventually with me adding to the mountain under our seats thanks to my paper route earnings then i left buffalo for college law school and life in new york and another triple crown drought set in a decade ago my father found out he had alzheimer's his mom dad and brother had all had the disease he had feared it his entire adult life and now he was to suffer the same fate. He was forced into a retirement he never wanted, but his love of horses endured. Three summers running, I took him to the Saratoga race course until the betting became too complicated for him. But the Belmont still held a special place. Even as his brilliant mind declined, twice he managed to travel by himself from Buffalo to New York with hopes of witnessing one more Triple Crown alongside his son and twice we were denied. Standing side by side watching first Smarty Jones and then Big Brown lose in heartbreaking fashion were among the happiest moments of my dad's retirement and of my adult life.
7: Victor,
15: you just won the Belmont Stakes and with it, ended the 37 year drought and got your first triple crown, finally.
14: Just after the Belmont this year, my face still flushed from crying, I called my mom in Buffalo to see if dad had watched. No, they hadn't watched the race. He wouldn't know a horse from a rabbit, she said. Instead, they were sitting at the table having dinner. My father, oblivious that his 37-year wait for another Triple Crown winner was over.
7: Well, you might not be able to feel how fast he's going, but I can feel how happy you are. Let's go to Kenny Rice.
14: I started to cry all over again.
0: And thank you for that, me, my dad, and American Pharaoh and Secretary at Horse Racing for the hour, storytelling like only we do here on Our American Stories. And great job, as always, Greg and the team for all the work they do. is Our American Stories, and we always enjoy a good-hearted and old-fashioned prank once in a while. And we call these Our Americana segments because Americans, well, in their spare time, in our spare time, we do all kinds of crazy stuff. We love visiting, for instance, the Mascot Hall of Fame. I mean, there's a guy who actually became the Philly Fanatic, and then when he retires, he's thinking, well, we need a Mascot Hall of Fame. And that's what he does with the rest of his life, and God bless him for doing it because it's fun. And Americans love to have fun. And I think no other country likes to have fun like we do. Most of us on our team love the show Impractical Jokers. And by the way, we love to just crack jokes on each other. This is not a place to come in if you don't have a a good, healthy ego. This is not a place to come to work. But not all pranks are created equal. In our ever-increasing litigious society and our hypersensitive society, some pranks can get you in a lot of trouble. Every year around graduation time, We hear news stories about senior pranks gone wrong.
9: 18-year-old Nick Fout pleaded not guilty in Delaware County Municipal Court this morning to two charges, inducing panic and disorderly conduct. The misdemeanor charges come after Fout, who police say dressed from head to toe in black spandex, entered Westerville Central High School Friday and released seven chickens into the commons area. A senior prank, say district officials, that involved another student and 12 chickens in all.
15: Five boys say they were at first told they could no longer participate in graduation activities. They thought it would just be funny, but the three boys brought, five boys brought three chickens here to school this morning, and
11: one student captured some video of the incident on a cell phone. New at 6, seniors at Slinger High School did a good one today, pulling off an unusual prank. They hired a mariachi band to follow their principal around for two hours.
2: Thursday evening, Justin and 19 other seniors got into the school with a key his father says came from another parent. They decked the halls in toilet paper, wrote class of 2013 on windows with shoe polish, and left furniture in odd,
12: unexpected places.
0: And so on and so forth. And if you've been in high school or you just had some time to kill, well, that's when the pranks can start. And while we can't condone this kind of behavior, you've got to admit, it's kind of funny. But letting chickens go inside of a school is peanuts compared to this next one. This is a prank of such epic proportion that it made world news overnight back in the 1970s. Our grand producer extraordinaire, most high in charge of the universe, brings us the story of a prank (laughs) so devious, the tale will warm the hearts of men and women for generations to come. Here's Jesse.
11: This is the story of one of the greatest pranks of all time. Oliver Porky Bicker was born November 1st, 1923, in Chialis, Washington. As a young man, he fought in World War II and took part in the D Day invasion of Normandy, for which he was later awarded the Normandy Medal of the Jubilee of Liberty by the French government. That's a mouthful. Married with three kids, the family moved to Sitka, Alaska in 1960, where Porky was working for a logging company. In 1964, he started his own business, Porky's Equipment Inc., selling and servicing logging gear. Woohoo! You see, Porky was a very talented logger and was famous for the ending acts he performed every year at the All-Alaska Logging Championships. He could cut down a tree and make it land wherever he wanted to. But our friend Porky here was best known as a prankster, a reputation he enjoyed even before this next stunt. Some of his pranks included using a backhoe to drop an entire tree in the middle of a friend's driveway or placing plastic flamingos in trees to confuse tour boats looking for wildlife. But it was the eruption of Mount Edgecumbe that made Oliver Porky Bicker, a legend throughout Alaska and the world. When he awoke that cold April morning, he looked out his window and could see right across the sound. The idea to ignite the volcano had occurred to Porky three years earlier. Soon as he had the idea, he collected 70 old tires that he kept in an airplane hangar. He waited all this time until the visibility conditions were just right for the prank. Porky also secured the assistance of some of his fellow prankster friends, part of a group calling itself the Dirty Dozen that used to meet every week for coffee. As the pranksters waited for the chopper, they piled the tires in two large canvas slings. Soon the pilot arrived, and they attached the slings to the bottom of the chopper. They also took along some smoke bombs, several gallons of kerosene, and some rags. Now in the very center of a giant dormant volcano crater at the top of Mount Edgecum in Sitka, Alaska, the men piled the tires into a stack, poured the kerosene, and lit them on fire. Thick black smoke began to bellow skywards. The crew got back in the chopper and headed home. The deed was done. Residents of Sitka, Alaska woke on Monday, April 1st, 1974, to a bright, clear, crisp day. They could see right across the Sitka Sound, where the familiar sight of Mount Edgecumbe, the dormant volcano, dominated the skyline. But today, something was a little different about the view. A menacing plume of black smoke was rising from the crater. It looks as if the volcano is ready to explode! People spilling out of their homes and into the streets to gaze up at the smoldering volcano. The Coast Guard ordered a chopper to be sent out to investigate immediately. Go! Get to the chopper! As the Coast Guard pilot approached Mount Edgecombe, the plume of smoke grew in size. Finally, he was right above it, and he peered down into the crater. At first, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. He looked closer, and then he laughed! Stacked in the cone of the volcano, burning with a greasy flame, was a huge pile of old tires and spray-painted in the snow beside the tires in 50-foot-high black letters with the words April Fools! The prank succeeded beyond Porky's wildest dreams, and news of it got picked up by the Associated Press and ran in papers around the world. Even the Coast Guard wasn't too mad about the stunt. The reaction of the people in Sitka once they realized the volcano wasn't really erupting was almost uniformly positive. That is the story of Oliver Porky Bicker and the eruption of Mount Edgecomb. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.
7: Now I
11: don't
2: know, I don't know, I don't
14: know where I'm going to go when the volcano blow. Let me say now, I don't know.
0: Our American Stories and you're listening to Alan Jackson singing the hymn softly and tenderly as he sings everything straight as an arrow. And this is our final thought segment. And this final thought segment comes from a student at Hillsdale College named Shiloh Caroza. I was up there in Michigan teaching for two weeks a group of young students about storytelling. And I asked each of them a simple question. What are you going through? Tell me a story. We started putting different stories on the board. Shiloh was very quiet. After two classes, I sort of gave her some space. When everybody left, I approached her. And I said, what's up? What do you got? I haven't heard you, from you during the class. And She said, my, my dad's dying. And we found out he had cancer, and he's not going to make it through the spring. I said, well, you're going through something. I said, why don't we write about it? Why don't you sit down and think about what you might want to do, what you might want to say to him? And so this is the story of Ken Carosa, a man who found himself locked in a battle with terminal brain cancer last spring. After raising a loving family in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Ken suddenly found his efforts redirected to a war he never planned to wage at the age of 58. Ken had spent the last 18 years homeschooling his two children, teaching part-time at Cornerstone University, and ministering in pulpits around Grand Rapids. More than anything, his life had been devoted to investing in other people's souls, striving to reach them and teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ and shower them with the same grace God had given him. In light of Ken's diagnosis, Shiloh decided to pass on his message while reminding her father of the powerful impact he had left on those around him, not least of all, his own family. Here's Shiloh.
15: When my father was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer in 2015, my family knew our lives were going to look very different. No longer would my brother and I have our closest counselor there to help us navigate the rest of our college years and early adulthood. My father would soon find his remaining time riddled with medications, surgeries, and sympathy cards. He would be fortunate to reach two years, a number we all despise for its brevity. But my father viewed those two years as a precious window of time in which he could still invest in others, still spread God's mercy, and teach people to live life in such a way that they will be prepared when they lose it. In October of 2015... My father delivered a message to the men of Oak Hill Presbyterian Church titled, Preparing to Cross the Finish Line, which I will be quoting. As a man who spent his entire life devoted to discipling and exhorting others to pursue their creator, he now found himself preaching the importance of being ready to meet their creator. What follows is the message he wanted to leave the world with, a parting challenge for those willing to listen.
0: And here are those words of Shiloh's dad. You cannot change the brevity of life. We have to all deal with that at one time or another. And we either get in touch with that or we don't. There's a way to deal with this. It's called preparation. What do you do to prepare for the day when you're told there's going to be a period after your sentence? You're going to be gone? I think what happens is, as Christians, we look at time and say, as long as I have it settled with Jesus, I'm okay. If anything happens, it's not if anything happens. It will happen. So what are you going to do to cultivate your preparation for the transition to the next life? Shiloh's dad continued. Six years ago, I lost two friends of mine in their 40s. It was just over with a heart attack both times. I couldn't believe that I had talked to them one day and they were gone the next. Oftentimes we think, as long as I'm saved, whatever happens, happens. But it affects the way you conduct your affairs. You start to ask, how am I going to spend my time? There's some aspect of this that we've got to think constructively about. Now, I'm not saying to get used to it all because death is part of life. Death is not part of life if death were part of life we wouldn't have tears we wouldn't have separations that cause depression for people and all the heartache that goes with it no death is unnatural because we no longer live in the perfect world that God made it's fallen because of sin Jesus Christ the Redeemer the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead so our sin could be forgiven gives us that opportunity of eternal life again. So you can prepare for death, and you need to think about how you look at God. I learned that in spades. Is God being tough? Is he being hard? Is he doing this to be mean? Or is God really at something special? 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9 says this, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, No mind can conceive what God has prepared for those who love Him. Do you know what the Apostle Paul is saying? He's saying you can't see it. You can't hear it. You can't imagine it. But God has something even better where He is. But some of us are alienated from the idea that God is not going to shortchange us. My experience was that God took away the fear when I needed Him to do that, I left Grand Rapids going to the University of Michigan, hoping that I would have a good outcome from the surgery. But I also knew it was possible that I might not be coming back. Having your account settled is a really good thing. I'm not talking about wills and estates. I know I could talk about that, but that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to tell you that God gave me a little bit more time. My question for you is, do you have any idea how long you have? Are you going to get another five years, ten, six months? Maybe you won't be here tomorrow night. What are you doing to make sure that you're ready? Even in death, her dad was teaching and ministering to souls. Let's return back to Shiloh.
15: My father loved people all his life and wanted them to know Christ personally. He provided my brother and me with a tangible example of living, resilient faith. He taught us to face life with the courage and confidence that God will carry us through any storm we face, even if it's the storm that ends our life. He taught us to live each day intentionally, to be ready, and to hold nothing back because we never know if we'll have tomorrow. As his daughter, I can say that he held nothing back in raising my brother and me. When he returned home from his first surgery, he opened up about his own feelings. He told me he was satisfied with the way he'd spent his life as a Christian. And knowing what he'd done, I could see why. He'd pastored a church. He'd taught at a Christian university. He'd spread the gospel through the radio and written publication. But when he sat across from me that day, he didn't mention any of those things. He looked me in the eye and said, You and your brother are my best investments. When I remember those words, I'm reminded of the years he spent homeschooling us. The evenings we went fishing in the lake. The times he took us camping, even though he never cared for life in a tent. The advice he was always so willing to dispense when we needed it. The late night conversations when we were too engrossed to look at the clock. All the nights he and my mom tucked us into bed. Looking ahead, we don't know how much time my father has left. Perhaps only a matter of months. No, he will probably not walk me down the aisle. No, he will not see his grandchildren. But compared to what he's done for us in the time he had, those things become pretty small. He gave us his parting message as a reminder to use the time we have. So I want to take this opportunity to remind him of the meaning he poured into my life. Thanks, Dad.
0: And beautifully done, Shiloh. And Ken, her father. My goodness, what a thing... All of us want our daughters to say She said as his daughter I can say That he held nothing back In raising my brother and me She also said he looked me in the eye And said you and your brother Are my best investments Beautiful Life is short and it seems too short When you share it with people you love But Ken Carosa's life Serves as testament to the power Of God's grace And the importance of being ready This is Our American Stories. And all month long, we're bringing you stories of families who've lost children to miscarriage or sudden loss of an infant or stillbirth. So many families go through these tragedies. And on October 1988, President Ronald Reagan declared October as National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. And there's an organization that's doing some very distinctive work to help families in their grief. Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep is a nonprofit that sends volunteer photographers to provide beautiful heirloom portraits to parents facing the untimely death of a baby. They have some 1,700 active photographers around the world and reach every state in the United States, 40 countries worldwide. To learn more about what they do, we spoke with one of their photographers in Colorado, Cliff Lawson. Here's his story of getting into photography and then many decades later, applying those skills to give hundreds of families a unique gift.
16: I got into photography back actually when I was in college and um, kept it as a hobby throughout my entire adult life. <laughs> I was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. And when I was, uh, took my R&R, my first stop was a camera shop in, uh, in Tokyo to buy the Nikon F, which at that time was, you know, that was the camera. And in fact, uh, to this day, I still have it still works i haven't put any film through it in 10 years but that's how i got involved in photography as a hobby then i retired back in 2001 and uh after about a month or so my wife decided she said you know sweetie you need to go find something to do and so I thought, oh yeah I, yeah let me get back to really really hit this photography hard and, and and uh make something of it so um Ended up buying a digital camera. Of course, by that time, the digital photography was the thing. I started uh, with just two lenses and a digital camera. I started taking some sports pictures. Then, at the time, I was working as a uh, sales associate at a camera store here in Parker, Colorado. And a young man came in, and he was getting some pictures developed. Turns out he was an associate photographer for not letting me down to sleep. We got to talking, and he mentioned that, and I said, "Oh, really? Yeah. Well, what is this?" He said, "Well, you yeah, know, we take pictures of babies that will never leave the hospital." I think the reaction is like many people: "Oh my, that sounds so sad." He said, "Well, yeah, it is." He said, "But here, let me show you some pictures." And he had his laptop, and his beautiful images he'd taken of a child in the in the hospital. And uh, so we talked some more, and he said, you know, you should consider doing this. We can always use more photographers. Kind of a, yeah, yeah, I should think about it. I went home and talked to my my wife about it, and she said, well, you know, you're so, you tend to be so emotional about things. Do you think you could handle it? I said, I don't know. I don't think you can know until you try. A few days later, maybe a week later, I was getting my hair cut, and the lady that cuts my hair. Um, I was telling her about, you know, we talk about what's going on in our lives, and I mentioned this to her. She came around in front of the chair, pointed her finger at me, and she said, you need to do this. I lost my son 20, whatever it was, 21, 22 years ago. They never let me see him. I would give anything to have what you're going to be able to give to these families. Well, that just, that was kind of the tipping point. I said, well, wow, okay. So i Sent in my application and volunteered and was accepted and um, here I am now. As of the end of this year, I've been with the now Me Down to Sleep for ten years. I think I've done over 150 babies in that in that ten-year span. So um, that's how I got involved uh, with this, and it's just a it's a wonderful organization. I mean, we uh... it's interesting to me that. When we try to recruit photographers, they say, oh, I can't do this. I'd be so emotional. And I tell them that, you know, I'm emotional, too. In fact, I cry at the end of Undercover Boss when the guy gives away stuff to the employees, you know. But this doesn't bother me because, you know, you've got a job to do. And so you, you... have to think about, the, do I get the lighting right? Am I getting the posing right? Am I getting the, the kind of shots that we want to get of the mom with the baby, dad with the baby, mom and dad with the baby, the various different poses we get? So you are really, we call it getting into photographer mode, I guess. But you are so much concerned with getting your job right that the emotion of the moment, um, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to sound cold here, but it's their issue, not mine. My issue is to get the pictures. And I understand that, you know, it's a very, very sad day for these families, but we have a job to do. So I don't find it um, that emotional taking the images. If I'm going to get emotional about it, it happens at the computer when I'm editing and processing those images, kind of changing them to black and white uh, and looking at it. Then, then sometimes, yeah, it kind of gets to me.
0: And by the way, what a remarkable series of events. I mean, Vietnam, camera shop, someone comes in, tells him about this gig. Then he's getting his hair cut. And this happens to us all the time in life. It's actually sort of how life happens. Some call it serendipity. And believers say it's a God thing. Either way, you take it and play it. It's one of the two. And here are several couples who've lost babies, speaking to how they felt during their Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep photo sessions. And what the pictures have meant to them ever since.
12: She will fit
8: in there. there were moments of toughness and moments of weakness.
17: And I think they were they weren't consistent, but they were often on. I was terrified of it. I knew that it was something that I would want and that something that we needed to do to make memories, but I didn't know how I felt about the actual process.
15: They are really what we have instead of having him. Um, We have you know little mementos and, and things of his but the pictures are him. They're her, they're our tangible piece of her that we can hang on to and look at forever. We have our memories and we have our moments that we can kind of try to flash back to but the pictures allow us to really go there and to really be back in those moments with her. And I even keep one on the bathroom counter so when I'm brushing my teeth and it's just kind of your not and it's day to day, it kinda of takes you back and just lets you remember that child that you don't see every day.
13: Now I lay me down to sleep is giving me the opportunity to remember it clearer and I guess hold on to it tighter.
15: And whether or not they look right away or they don't look for three months, six months or five years you don't get that chance again. So, to be able to have an organization that will literally go anywhere and to anyone to give that gift is priceless. Um, you know, our favorite one that we have um, a big, big picture of in our hallway, uh, he just looks so, so beautiful. You know, he's just our baby in that picture. And when I think of him in my mind, that's the picture that I see. And it just makes it almost feel like it's going to be okay. And it gives people hope to to know that, you know, you're allowed to love that baby just as much as your other babies. And here's proof.
0: And if you're a photographer who'd like to volunteer or a family or healthcare professional that might want to request a remembrance photo session, you can learn more at nowilaymedowntosleep.org. That's now I lay me down to sleep.org. And thanks to those families for sharing. Thanks also to Cliff, and that's Cliff Lawson in Colorado, for what you do and for sharing your story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. Not many people cover it. We do. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports, from history to business and innovation, and everything in between. And we'd love to hear your stories. Send your best stories your family stories, personal stories, stories about love and loss and life, courage, any subject at all. Funny stories. A good toast, by the way. A great toast at a wedding love to hear anything or everything you have send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org that's ouramericannetwork.org and now it's time for our better health care at lower cost series sponsored by the great folks at the stetson family office and our own alex cortez brings us this next edition
17: we lost my mom 10 years ago she was really healthy she was actually working out at the gym at the time when She dropped a bag uh, from overhead and it hit her clavicle somewhat lightly and and a clavicle fractured, which was really surprising because clavicles aren't supposed to fracture. And they went in and they found out that she had a tumor in it and that she had stage four cancer. She had tumors all over her body.
13: We're listening to entrepreneur, investor and son, Joe Lonsdale.
17: She'd been complaining a little bit about some pain after an operation, and the doctor told her it was, just, it was probably nothing, it's normal to have some pain, but it turned out the pain was a, was a huge tumor in her liver. So it was pretty horrible. I was in my mid-twenties at the time, and we all took off some time, spent with her. I wish I'd taken off a lot more time, because we only we only had her for three months. We thought we'd have her for maybe a year. But she, she passed away pretty quickly, so it was a really big shock. And I you know I was already really close with my family, but it brought us even closer anyone who's ever lost a parent it kind of shifts the nature of the world a little bit my mom was kind of like the bedrock in the family so it really it really fundamentally changes things i honestly felt really angry at myself for not having done more in the area of cancer and the area of biology before i found out about this as a young kid my father coached our chess team and and we were the state chess champions and national chess champions and that gave us a lot of confidence and i think it's probably good for kids memory too i I always thought i was really good at chess but my dad still wins the state chess championship he's coaching the same team you know for fun 30 years later so so he probably wasn't me it was probably him
13: it also sounds like this father-son duo from silicon valley were some real dorks
17: (laughs) well and this is probably politically incorrect, but the area is about 50% Asian. So so I think it was a more studious area, right? So it wasn't that unusual to be studying hard. Can't touch this. If anything, when there were bullies at school, my job was to defend my friends from the bullies because I was a little bit of like a bigger athletic kid Can't touch this. R- relative to some of my friends who were doing math and chess with me. And, and I you know, became good friends with, with some of these kids too when you when you, they try to bully you and your little boys get in fights and after you, have a fight, but you become friends. I think that's a natural thing for young boys. I don't know these days, maybe that's politically incorrect. But, uh, but you know, it was actually really funny. MC Hammer moved next door to us. You know where MC Hammer is from back then? He was really famous. It was a middle class neighborhood. He moved in, he brought a lot of his nieces and nephews who'd come from a not a very good part of town. And some of them ended up becoming bullies of my friends. But then when we fought back with the young men, we actually became good friends with them too. So it was an interesting upbringing.
13: Joe went on to Stanford in 2000, and while there, he interned for this little company that had this crazy vision of creating what they called the New World Currency, whatever that means. Some foreign idea of person to person payments on the web that doesn't sound so foreign now, but sounds like PayPal.
17: I think there were a lot of iconoclasts at the company. I think that the sort of people that Peter and Elon
13: Uh, Peter as in Peter Thiel, later the first investor in Facebook, and Elon as in the only Elon I know, I mean, I don't actually know, Elon Musk.
17: We're friends with people who had strong opinions that were different than the mainstream, and these are people who were very ambitious, hard workers who wanted to build things. I think the culture brought together a lot of people who, in another sense, might have each founded their own companies, and instead they were all working together.
13: Their nerdy, workaholic, anti-jock, pro-reading, sleep-behind-your-desk culture, and whom it attracted became so infamous that the outside world began calling it by its own name, the PayPal Mafia. Wouldn't you want to work somewhere that feels like a mafia? And for them, the mafia continued long past they all left PayPal building more companies together, and even when not, investing in each other's dreams of businesses that could make the world better.
17: And, And obviously it taught people a lot being there because so many of my friends were there left and they started companies like LinkedIn and Yelp and YouTube. And of course, Elon started Tesla and SpaceX. And they're really like 15 or $16 billion companies started by the people there. And I think it was because it was just such a creative place where they all learned so quickly that they could take those lessons and bring them to their next companies.
13: Some pretty decent motivation for this kid, Joe Lonsdale, to keep up with them.
17: I was just a kid there. I was one of the youngest guys.
13: A kid who would go on to build three different companies, Adapar, OpenGov, and Palantir, the last of which is valued at $21 billion dollars. And with this success, Joe now freely uses his own capital and that of other investors at his firm 8VC to help budding entrepreneurs who are where he used to be. Someone with a dream and in need of some capital.
17: If you're going to be investing in technology, if you want to have big wins, it has to be something that's newly possible. So you can't invest in Google now, it's probably much too late. There's already a really good Google. If you want to invest in Uber or Lyft, you know, ride-sharing companies, well, they've been possible for 10 years. If you tried to invest in Uber in 2000, that doesn't make any sense. There's no mobile phone ecosystem. When Steve Jobs and these guys create the mobile ecosystem, Uber becomes possible at some point in the next few years, that's when you have to invest in ride-sharing, right? So the question is, as an investor, is what's possible now that wasn't possible five years ago or 10 years ago?
13: And what's possible now in healthcare is almost unbelievable. By simply looking at a sample of your saliva, scientists can sequence your unique DNA, which means that they can see the order of your genes and see if there's any variations from what's normal and could be a red flag for a disease. And one day, Joe's friend Elad Gill brought him even better news.
17: He said, "Joe, I think with the, with the latest declines in Sequencing costs. We're going to be able to measure people's risks for different types of cancer, for different types of cardiovascular things. And it's only going to cost a couple hundred dollars, maybe less. And right now in the market, it costs six thousand dollars to get your risk measured. So no one actually knows their risk. But if it's only a couple hundred dollars, it'd be worth it for everyone to do it because you'd actually be able to save a lot of lives. It turns out, for example, two and a half percent of women have some really high percent chance of getting cancer. And there's ways that if you know that that it's actionable, you could do things to protect yourself. You could do things to. To, to make it so you don't die as young. And I was looking at the numbers with him, and I said, wow, this is really amazing. And he's, he's such a talented guy, I knew he'd be able to build a top team. So I led the first major round of financing along with another big fund, Coastal at the time. And he gives me a few free tests as they're coming out. It's like, we're just starting to do these tests. You should try it out. It checks 37 genes and let you know if you have you know, certain risks or not. And I, and I talked to Taylor about it.
13: Joe's wife.
17: I had these tests at home and she's like, oh, I'll take it and see what it is just to support it. And she took the test and unfortunately it came back that she has an 80% chance risk of getting cancer by the time she's in her 60s, which is obviously terrifying. Uh, but there's also the counselors they have, and they talk to her, and there's you know, all sorts of family planning we're doing. It's one reason we're having kids sooner, of course, because you can get the kids sooner, and you can take certain actions to protect yourself once you've had kids. And so he said, wow, this is really important. You know, you have this gene, you better have your family check, check into it too. And so we had about, several people in our family took the test. You know, $200 each is not, not a big cost. And unfortunately, her mother came up having the same gene, which makes sense. She got it from her mother's side. And we had no idea that, actually. We had some cancer on her mom's side. We had no idea there was this really high risk on that side of the family. And so her mom went and saw her doctor. You know, she asked the doctor, what do I do? You know, is there anything we should know? And the doctor said, oh, wow, that's, that's weird. I've never heard of this before, that someone just go and take the test. But that does seem like a risk. We should probably take your ovaries out just in case. But, you know, you're totally fine. You're healthy. I wouldn't worry about it but yeah, come in next month, we'll have the procedure. It's a good thing to do. And so she comes in the next month to have the procedure and they cut in and take the ovaries out and they discover like stage three B or three C cancer. So it's it's not quite stage four, but it's pretty late stage. Cancer is terrifying that we only found it because she was having this, you know, preventative procedure. And it turns out, fortunately it was early enough that it looks like she's okay right now. We've, you know, she had to cut a bunch of it out and had to do a bunch of chemo and and stuff, but she's, she's doing really well. She's here taking care of our daughter a lot and interacting with our family, and she definitely wouldn't be here with us today if we hadn't done this $200 test.
13: And if Joe hadn't invested in this life-saving company that he couldn't have known would save the life of someone in his family, Joe's mom is gone, but she was in the front of his mind when he made this investment.
17: You realize that she's still with you in a lot of ways and that everything that she taught and inculcated and made you into who you are is still there even though she's gone. So I guess in some ways you kind of still feel her a lot.
0: And great job as always, Alex. And the company, by the way, the testing company is Color Genomics. And Joe Lonsdale's story is a story of capital at work, human capital at work, human stories at work to make life better, to add value to people's lives, and in the end, in Joe's case, with his mom in mind to save lives, his own families, and, well, in the end, societies too, everyone's, not just in America, but across the world, and that's what Americans do, that's what American capital does. In the end, it unleashes innovation, improves lives, adds value, and changes the world. Joe Lonsdale's story, in a way, his mom's story, here, on our American Stories. And as always, our Better Health at Lower Cost series is brought to us by the great folks at the Stetson Family Office. And again, that was Color Genomics. Go to color.com to learn more. Again, Joe Lonsdale's story, his mom's story, here on our American Stories.